So we are continuing our series on the Advent, and we labeled it the Incarnation. And really, the Incarnation is this fancy term to describe how Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became fully human. Okay, So the purpose of this series is really, um, as we do in Christmas, is to point back our hope to Christ. Because not only has Christ came down as man to essentially live a perfect life to die for our sins, but one day we have hope in the fact that he will come again to restore all things. Um, This is what we celebrate and even remember during Christmas time. So today we're going to be doing something very specific. Uh, We're going to be talking about, or actually we're going to be rather answering this question, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come in the flesh? And last week, if you remember, we talked about how God's presence, God being with us, is greater than any other blessing that he can provide for us. Last week, Pastor Joe talked about how the new covenant was much better than the old covenant. And there was this metaphor of the, the substance being greater than the shadow. Now today, we're actually going to go talk about the, the actual incarnation, so again, we're, we're going to answer this question. What does the incarnation mean? All right? And the passage that we're looking at today is actually super rich theologically. There's a lot of content. Um, I think really just within these couple chapters, a church can spend an entire series. Um, but I'm going to do my best to kind of unpack these wonderful truths for us. So if you have your Bible, we're going to go straight into it. Let's turn them to the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to be reading for us. This is from the English Standard Version. And this is God's word. And it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those are being tempted. So this is our passage for today. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I'm going to give give you guys the points, okay? Um, There's three things that we're going to be talking about today, okay? So this text gives us three reasons why Jesus became flesh. Here's the first reason. The first reason why Jesus became flesh is because to defeat Satan. Jesus became flesh to defeat Satan, Now, in verse 14, we see that Jesus became flesh and blood to destroy Satan, right? Destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, what does this mean, right? Why does this matter so much? Well, the reason is this. Satan's goal in life is this. He wants to use our sins to separate us from God. That's his main objective. In order to do that, Guess what he's going to do? He's going to tempt us to sin. So if you think about it, what is a win for Satan? What's a win for Satan? 
A win for Satan is for people to sin and to not repent. So if really Satan had his own way, if he had his way, all of mankind would be in hell. That would be his perfect dream scenario. That was his objective with Adam and Eve, right, when we see in Genesis 3, to completely separate mankind from God through sin. So let me put it this way. If the heavens and the angels, if they celebrate when one sinner comes to Christ in repentance, Satan and the demons, they celebrate when one sinner turns away from God and goes to hell. So when one individual goes to hell, Satan and his demons, they throw a party, they celebrate, we finished our job with this individual. Let's get the rest. Now, the doctrine of hell is extremely unpopular in the church. Um, you don't see churches devoting an eight-week series on hell, right? Can you imagine, like, um, hey, invite your church or invite people to church. We're going to be going through a really fun series on hell. It's going to be eight weeks, and it's going to be great. And can you imagine, like, you're bringing your friend for the first time. Oh, my gosh. Out of all the topics, we're talking about hell. Christians get so uncomfortable when they talk about hell, don't we? I mean, do you ever want to make a conversation awkward? Right, let's, so it's Christmas, right? We have, uh, some of us, we had Friendsgiving. We have other holiday parties with friends and loved ones. If you ever want to make a conversation awkward, talk about hell. Can you imagine you're, you're hanging out, you're grabbing dinner, it's a potluck, you're with your friends, and all of a sudden, it's, it's a friend that you haven't seen in a long time, and you're like, hey, it's so good to see you. How are you? Yeah, work's good. Yeah, how is your kids? By the way, do you think your kid's going to go to hell? Like, well, how would you respond to that if someone asked you that question? It would be like, the hell are you talking about, right? I mean, hell is such an uncomfortable subject for us to talk about. And do you know why it's so difficult to talk about? Do you know why it's so uncomfortable? Why even Christians, we cringe at the topic of it? It's because our society is all about good vibes only. Now let me explain. Millennial term. So let me unpack this for us. No one likes to be the party pooper. Okay. No one wants to talk about a reality where there's eternal punishment and wrath because that is when we step on other people's toes. So if you think about it, hell is way too offensive for our super sensitive, soft like Charmin culture today. Our culture has become so soft and sensitive. And the reason why hell is so offensive is because our culture celebrates this idea of moral relativism. Now, the idea of moral relativism, it's, it's hard for me to say that word. I'm happy I said it twice. Um, the idea of this is that, look, you have a set of ethics, you have a set of standards, values, beliefs, and that's cool and all, but here's the thing. I have my own. I'm going to respect your values and beliefs. You respect mine. And no matter how different or even how opposed our beliefs are, it's all valid. It's all right. It's all okay, as long as you don't step on other people's toes. Now, you see, that's why hell is so offensive, because we're stepping on other people's toes, declaring that there is a moral absolute. There is intrinsically a right and a wrong. But here's the thing. When it comes to hell, we can't understand grace and justice if we don't understand sin and hell. Hell is real. 
and I would be, um, I would be a bad preacher to say, no, hell doesn't exist. God loves everyone, so we all go to heaven. I'm actually saddened by people who preach that hell doesn't exist. And, you know, this is what universalism is called. It's extremely dangerous, this idea of that there is no hell. And since it's becoming more and more appealing, we as a church, we have to stand firm in this doctrine, this doctrine of hell. The reason why Jesus defeating Satan is so important is because it makes hell escapable. David Platt, he was talking about the subject, and he said this, Hell is escapable because Jesus has endured the wrath of God on our behalf so that all who trust in him will be delivered from God's wrath and brought into fellowship with him forever. And this is the gospel message. The fact that Jesus, God himself, took on flesh to take our sins, to take our punishment and the wrath that we deserve, to to die the death that we deserved, so that we can spend eternity, not suffering, but eternity in his presence. So how did Jesus do that? How did Jesus defeat Satan? Well, in verse 17, it says this. By being flesh and blood, he was able to be a faithful high priest to make the payment for the sins of people. So propitiation is a big, fancy theological term. It just means payment for sin, which is Jesus' blood. So Jesus, being the faithful high priest, because he was human, because he lived that perfect and righteous life, he was able to make that payment on our behalf. Jesus had to be fully human so he can be a merciful and faithful high priest so that he can pay for the sins of others. And his death, namely through his blood, brought about the payment for our sins. So we are debt free. In Christianity, this is the ultimate paradox because Jesus defeated Satan and his power of death through his own death. That's kind of crazy, right? Because every other narrative we see, every story we look at, shows that in order for you to win the war, to be the hero, to be the champion, you have to kill your enemies or push them to surrender. You have to use force. You have to use violence. But Jesus' victory over Satan is so unique because he won through humble self-sacrifice. He gave his own life. He won by dying on the cross. And he did that willingly with joy. Jesus didn't intimidate. He didn't coerce his enemies. Um, I almost said enemies. Jesus didn't go to war. He didn't use means of violence or oppression. Jesus won by going to the cross and dying. And at the cross, the cross, right, which is the symbol of capital punishment and torture, that is where we as Christians find hope in knowing that all of our sins, all of our wrongdoings are paid for. Thus, the work of Satan is rendered useless. So why the incarnation? Why did Jesus become flesh? This is our first point. Jesus became human to defeat Satan. Here's our second point. Why did Jesus become flesh? Well, number two, he became flesh to free us from the fear of death. So verse 15, Jesus through his death, number one, he destroyed Satan. And the second verb that we see is delivered. He delivered us from what? Being in slavery to this fear of death. So 
the author is saying this, because Jesus defeated Satan, sin, and death, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Death isn't the end, but rather, if we put our faith in Jesus, death is actually the doorway to new life. One of my favorite TV shows right now is Parks and Rec. Uh, it's, it's awesome. Um, I've been watching it all the time. And the reason why it's one of my favorite shows to watch, it's um, for two reasons. Well, before I go forward, um, if you don't know what Parks and Rec is, uh, you should get Netflix and you should watch it yourself. But Parks and Rec is really a political satire sitcom from NBC. And it's about this Parks and Recreation division of this small fictional town called Pawnee in Indiana. Okay? Now, there's two reasons why I love this show and probably why you love the show as well if you watch it. Number one, the show is really good at character development. The characters are so good, right? Um, can you imagine hanging out with Ron Swanson for a day? I think that would be such a fun day. Like, can you imagine going shopping with Tom Haverford and Donna during Treat Yourself Day every year? Right? Just buy whatever the heck you want. And not only that, the characters are so relatable. Like, I look at a lot of the friends that I have, and I see the characters of Parks and Rec. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're totally a Leslie Nope. Uh, for me, I feel like, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, maybe I'm not self-aware, but I think I'm a blend of Andy and Tom with a little bit of Jerry or Gary, right? Um, so that's the first thing. I love the show because they're so good at character development. The characters are so relatable. Here's the second thing. The writers are so insightful and up-to-date with key issues happening in our society. So in 2012, there's an episode where Tom Haverford got into a car accident. The reason why he got into the car accident was because he was on his phone. But he wasn't texting on his phone. You know what he was doing? He was live-tweeting. He was live-tweeting driving. So even after he crashed, he was still live-tweeting. And mind you, this was in 2012 when we were still on the iPhone 4, okay? This was a while back. So this is actually a snippet of the scene. Oh, this is Parks and Recs, right? This is, it's hard to see it, so I'm just going to read it for you. So, so he's in court, and this guy's saying, please read the transcript of your, your Twitter page leading up to and immediately following your crash. Right, here's the first thing. Four green lights in a row, hashtag blessed, right? I love that. Um, here's a second tweet, live tweet. Drive faster, Blue Civic. Damn, hashtag soccer moms. Here's the next one. Gotta pass this lady on the right? And that's when he actually got into the accident, right? And he said, that's when I hit the fire hydrant. Allegedly hit the fire hydrant. And even after he crashed, this is the best. This is what he tweeted. Just hit a fire hydrant, but I survived. Hashtag unbreakable, right? And look at the judge's face. It's awesome. You see, this episode exposed Tom's dependence on technology. And this episode actually showed how he went through withdrawals like a drug addict while going through this one-week period of detoxing from electronics. He was so desperate to, to have a phone in his hand that, you know what he did? He made an iPhone out of paper to play with, and he drew the different like app squares. He was playing with it, and he was like, this isn't the real thing. You see, this episode here is a satirical warning for us that's so relevant today, seven years later, after this episode. Here's another thing 
Um, so there's a character by the name of Chris Traeger. Um, I label him the introvert's nightmare. Uh, he's the city manager of Pawnee. His character, if you don't know, is very positive, upbeat, energetic, and he's extremely health conscious. He's into yoga. He's into meditating. Um, he literally did all the hip diets, all the hip fads. Long story short, Chris went through a series of unfortunate events, and he actually became depressed. So um, he would talk about how he sees a therapist five times a week, right? It's like over excessive. And, in, and this, this came out in 2011. His character revealed how our society copes with mental and emotional health, which is so real for us today. It's such a hot topic. And, you know, this is kind of like Chris Traeger's trademark. He uses, he over, he, he literally uses, overuses the word literally, right? He says this. I mean, he went literally from being the most optimistic man in the world and he became the saddest man in the world in a matter of a couple seasons. And the reason why I bring up Chris Traeger is this. His character is very interesting because the reason for his positivity, the reason for him being so health conscious was why? Was so that he can live to be 150 years old. Right? And there's an episode where he said, I want to be that first human to be 150 years old. Why? Why live to be that long? Or to, why live to be that old? Because he doesn't want to die. His greatest fear is death. And he realizes, oh, I have a slide of him too. That's him, right? And it says, if I keep my body moving and my mind occupied at all times, I will avoid falling into a bottomless pit of despair, right? This is why he's always active. He's always upbeat. He's always working out. And here's the thing. He's afraid of death. And once he goes through his depression, he realizes that death is more real than ever, and it's absolutely crushing for him. Now, I'm here to say this. The fear of death, this is very telling for our society, isn't it? The fear of death is real. I honestly think our society copes with the fear of death like Chris Traeger. What do we do? We try to prevent it by doing all these workouts. We try to avoid it, not think about it. We try to mitigate it. And if I'm able to be a little vulnerable with you, um, one of my greatest fears is the death of my loved ones. I've been through it, and it's scary. And I wouldn't want to wish that on anyone here. One of my greatest fears, if I can be honest with you, church, is that I am really afraid of my dad dying. And to be honest with you, I've, I've actually had nightmares about it. It's really scary for me. And the reason why I bring such a personal example up is to show that the fear of death is paralyzing. It shakes us to our core, if we really think about it, if we sit with it. The fear of death drives us to do many different things, to change our lifestyle, to change the way how we interact with others. Now, I don't mean to make this so dark, but the reason I mention all of this is to show that this passage in Hebrews is so comforting because the author tells us that Jesus' work in, number one, defeating Satan, has, number two, also freed us from this paralyzing fear that we have in regards to death. So this question then, why don't we have to fear death? 
It's because if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, death is not the end. And, you know, with the Apostles' Creed, this is what we just said. We confess that we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection that one day after this life, we will be resurrected and we will be where we belong in God's presence. This is a great passage. So much meaning for me, personally. In John 11, Jesus is with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus passed away. And Jesus is having these super emotional conversations with both Mary and Martha. And he says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And not only do I think is Jesus asking this to Mary, to Martha, to the disciples, to the crowd that was present when he did resurrect Lazarus, but I think Jesus is asking us this question as well. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe that death is not the last final thing here? Do you believe that one day God will resurrect us and we will be in a place, as Revelation 21 describes, where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, that God himself will wipe every single tear from our face and we will be in God's presence. Jesus becoming flesh. Jesus as God incarnate accomplished freeing us from this paralyzing fear of death. He did that by becoming human. He did that by dying and by rising again. And therefore, if we have faith in him, that is our reality as well. Here's our last point. So why the incarnation? Number one, to defeat Satan. Number two, to free us from this fear of death. And here's our last point. Number three, Jesus became human to empathize with us. Jesus became human to empathize with us. Verse 14 says, he partook in flesh and blood. He became like us in every way. Uh, If we go back here, it says that he had to be made like us brothers in every respect. He was like us. And not only that, Jesus suffered when he was tempted. He, and because of that, he was able to help us when we suffer when tempted. He is like us in every single way. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means this. Whatever you've been through, Jesus has been through and more. There is no circumstance that we go through in life that is foreign to Jesus. The incarnation tells us that he fully understands and he fully knows what we're going through. Which is why he can be a faithful and merciful high priest. That is why he can pay for our sins. Um, Tim Keller said this. He, He was talking about this passage and he was... Um, sharing a personal story where he actually went through a rough season of darkness. Um, there was this time in life where he had thyroid cancer, 
And he was doing ministry for about 25 years um, before he had cancer. And this is what he thought. Doing pastoral ministry for 25 years, I thought I understood suffering. Because he sat during that entire tenure of, of ministry and walking with his people. He sat through many people who's been at the hospital. He sat through many people um, at emergency rooms who were facing the operating table. And he prayed for them. He held their hand. He was there. He was present. And this is what he said. This is his quote. I was conceited enough to believe that I knew and cared more than the doctors. For doctors, yeah, you see it all the time, but it's a job at the end of the day. As a pastor, I was there to weep with the people, to pray with the people, to be with the people. But when he was finally wheeled in for surgery to remove the cancer in his body, he realized, man, I had no idea. I really had no idea. I, I, I didn't really understand what this was like. For Tim, he's never experienced the feeling of being rolled into an operating room, not knowing what's going to happen the next couple hours. You can die, you can live. Who knows? And not only that, after the operation, which went well, the doctors told him this, um, look, you're not going to have any thyroid hormones for a while. And they warned him, this is kind of the results of your, your procedure. Um, you're going you're to get depressed. You're going to feel a little lethargic. And for Tim Keller, he knew that it was temporary. He knew the signs of it. It made sense. It was rational. He knew why he would feel depressed and lethargic. But he shared that it was still a horrible circumstance for him. He realized, oh, so this is what depression is like. It's so dark. You really can't do anything about it. Nothing can change it. Nothing can cheer you up. Nothing can take you out of the state. I think this, this story that he shared shows me this. There's a difference between being present and having empathy. Let me explain. Presence is awesome. And we talked about that. One of the greatest ways we can bless others is by simply just being there with them, sitting with them. It's powerful, right? The ministry of presence is extremely powerful and life-giving. But there is a difference between simply being there for someone versus being able to understand someone's circumstance because you've been through it. You see that difference? Tim Keller, before surgery, before cancer, he was present as a pastor, but he really wasn't able to empathize the suffering and the pain of the people he was ministering to until he went through it himself. You see that? So in other words, presence communicates you are not alone. Empathy, however, communicates you are understood. You are known. And because of the incarnation, Jesus is not only present with you, not only will he never forsake you, but the incarnation also tells us that he understands you. He can relate to your suffering. He's been there. In Christ, you are never alone, and you have someone who knows you and understands you deeply, and he still loves you. The incarnation tells us that God has been through any darkness you've been through and more. 
Therefore, we can trust in him. We can rely on him. He understands. Have you been betrayed? Have you been through loss? Have you been lonely? Have you been broke? Have you been facing death? So has he. And, you know, maybe you're saying this. Hey, Randy, look, I I prayed about these different things. Um, I was really, I was very proactive in my prayers. Um, I devoted myself to pray about this thing time after time. But my prayers got turned down. Well, here's the thing. You know that Jesus' prayers got turned down too? Do you remember Gethsemane? Where Jesus, where Jesus prayed, please remove this cup. Remove the suffering away from me. Jesus got turned down too. But you say, Randy, you don't understand. God has abandoned me. God has totally left me. Well, what do you think Jesus said on the cross when he died? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? And this really shows us that Jesus has been through everything you've been through. He's been through every darkness and worse, and that is why we can trust in him, and that is why we can get through it. No darkness that we experience is foreign to Jesus. You know the sufferings that you go through? Um, Some of the big questions in life that you don't have answered? All the pain that you have to deal with? None of that is a shock or a surprise to Jesus. Jesus knows it too well. The incarnation is so great because Emmanuel, God with us, understands and has been through the same pit we've been in. So that's why Jesus came to earth. To defeat Satan, to defeat sin, he freed us from this paralyzing fear of death. And lastly, he became human just to show us I know what you've been through. I can relate to you. I understand. In conclusion, um, I want to say this. The incarnation shows us that Jesus got involved in the lives of others. Jesus got involved with the lives of others. You know, he, he wasn't passive. He went out of his way to put himself into our mess. And that's a very difficult thing to do. What do I mean? Surely you've heard of this phrase, snitches get stitches. Right? Uh, I've been subbing for a couple of months now, and this is the, the moral high code that all high schoolers and middle schoolers live by. Snitches get stitches. Right? There was one student who was so rebellious. Oh, my gosh. Drove me insane. So everyone's on their phones, and the teacher has given me clear policies on tell them to put away their phones or you can take it away. I was like, okay. So I told this lady, please put away your phones. I'm very nice and gracious. And she wouldn't. And she gave me an attitude. She's like, I ain't going to put away my phone. And I was like, oh, okay, we're going there. I like it. Put away your phone. It's not my rules. I understand that you want to be on it. I understand you're doing work with it, but this is policy. And again, attitude. And I'm just like, okay, forget it. I'm not going to deal with this. Give me your phone. I ain't going to give you my phone. And I'm like, oh, shoot. So the entire class, it's, you guys should have seen this. It would be like a, a great episode in the life of Randy. What happened was this. Entire class was silent, and eyes were big. And everyone was waiting for my reaction. What is the substitute teacher going to do? Right? The funniest thing happened. I was like, okay, 
you want to play this game? I'm down. Let's do it. So I go, to, I go back to the desk. I go to the phone to, you know, call the office so we can get an SIA to come. The phone is dead. <laughs> the phone doesn't work in the classroom. So I'm just like, oh, dang it, what do I do? So I had to actually uh, interrupt a different class that was next to us so that he can call in the SIA. Right. Now, I didn't mean to tell this story. I just got really passionate right now. But the reason why I bring the story is because um, it was a group table, and I was asking for her name. I was like, what is your name? And, you know, they're not going to tell me so easily. So I was like, all right, cool. I can play that game too. Um, all four of you, I have a seating chart right here. Um, all four of you are going to be written up. They're like, no, 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 don't do that. My name is this. My name is this. My name is this, right? And then through the process of elimination, I figured out her name. And the reason why is because they knew they didn't want to snitch on her friend. So in 1964, there's a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese. Maybe you heard of this. But she was actually stabbed to death near her apartment. And she screamed for help. And there were actually a number of people who heard and saw, but they didn't come down to protect her. Nor did they immediately call for help. Now, why? Well, according to this New York Times article, one of the witnesses said this. I didn't call, I didn't help her out, because I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to get involved. This is what made the story so infamous. And many schools of psychology, they talk about this, and this is called the bystander effect. Now, why didn't this witness want to get involved? Because if a person comes down to help, or even if you call the police... Involvement, at the end of the day, means vulnerability. When, because when you're up there, when you're silent, when you're unnoticed, you're safe. But if you come down, you reveal yourself, the suspect knows who you are, and you're vulnerable. If you tell the police, there might be retaliation. You lose your safety, you're vulnerable, and it's not worth coming down. But when we look at the idea of Christmas and why we're in this series today, Christmas can be summarized in three words. Jesus came down. Jesus got into our mess. He became vulnerable. He became killable. And Jesus came down not only at the risk of his life, but Jesus came down at the cost of his life. Do you see? Jesus loved immortality to become vulnerable flesh so that he can get involved in our mess by ultimately dying a humiliating death. So I want to leave you with this application. Two words, simple. Get involved. Get involved. Here's what I mean. This week, if you're able to, if you have time, have dinner with someone you're not close to or someone you don't regularly hang out with or see. Maybe someone who's outside of your normal friend group. Um, Maybe it's someone from church you haven't spoken to in a long time. Maybe it's a coworker or another friend. Whoever it is, um, invite them over to your house for dinner or simply take them out for dinner. And I'm not saying that to get involved means you have to be their BFF, right? You have to be super close. Um, I'm just saying just, just get involved. Be a part of their lives. Spend time with them. As you're eating dinner, get to know their story. See how they're doing right now. Get their prayer requests. Pray for them. That's how we can get involved. 
And I'm pretty sure that Jesus getting involved with us, Jesus coming into our, our mess, is very um, telling of how we should do our relationships with one another as well. Seek ways to encourage and to support them. Get involved in their life. This Advent season, we have many reasons to celebrate. We do. But our greatest blessing comes from the incarnation of Christ, where Jesus became flesh and blood. In Christ, we have a champion who's defeated Satan and sin, once and for all. In Christ, we have a deliverer who's freed us not only from the consequences of sin, but we have a deliverer who's freed us from the fear of death. And lastly, in Christ, we have a, a great empathizer who is not only present with us, but he understands us. He, he knows what we go through, and he can relate to us. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Uh, we are so grateful for this reminder that, Jesus, you became flesh, and that you didn't, ju- you, you, you didn't do it just because. You didn't do it because... Um, for some selfish ambition or agenda. But out of your humble compassion and your love for us, you came down, you got involved with us, you came into our mess to defeat Satan, to make hell escapable. You came down into our mess to free us from this fear that we have from death, and death is scary. And God, you came down into flesh to understand us, to empathize with us, not only just to be there with us. You know us, God. You've made us. You've wired us. And surely, maybe there are some of us here sitting in this room where we feel, God, that, oh, man, I'm so isolated right now. I feel so alone. Um, This is so dark. I don't know how to handle this. And if there are people right now who feel that way my prayer is that you would administer your presence and your love and your care and your empathy to those who are walking in very dark paths right now Jesus you are so tender hearted you are so compassionate and it is, it is very true that the angels and the heaven celebrate when one sinner comes to you in repentance And God, we pray that you would offer that to us. We pray that you would remind us of your love and care. This season, as we reflect on the incarnation, give us hope, give us joy, and give us comfort in knowing that one day, Jesus, you will return again to make all things right. Build your church for your glory. Continue to encourage us and to support us help us to hope in you. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.